This is the Frontier Freedom Hour, sponsored by Centennial Institute at Colorado Christian University. Here's Jeff Hunt. Well, friends, welcome back. Howdy, howdy, howdy to all of you. I just got back from Odessa, Texas. It was just wonderful down there. Sat next to a a Bronco rider all the way back from Dallas, Texas. We talked all about the rodeo the whole time. He's a saddle maker now. Uh, Jamie, I miss those people. (laughs) I feel like the modern state of our government here in Colorado is Boulder, Denver, and it's like the western and eastern parts of Colorado are not even recognized anymore. And we we spent a whole lot of time just talking about his history as a bronc rider and uh, the issues that he faces out in Watkins. It was uh, it was a great conversation. But that leads me to get very excited about the Western Conservative Summit because in the midst of all the craziness we face in this state, we get to host one of the largest annual gatherings of conservatives, 2,300 attendees on average, uh, about 100,000 viewers online, 40 to 50 national conservative speakers, 60 exhibiting partners, all the conservative organizations right here at the Gaylord Rockies in Denver, Colorado, June 3rd and 4th. Tickets are available at westernconservativesummit.com, westernconservativesummit.com. Jamie, when I was in Texas, one of the uh, issues we discussed was the nature of fighting mama bear conservatives (laughs) and how they're kind of leading the effort right now. You've got Kaylee McEnany, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, Lauren Boebert, will be speaking. The conservative movement in this state really, and, and nationally, seems to be really driven these days by fighting mama conservative bears. Not not just kind of nice conservative women, but uh, the Margaret Thatchers of the world. They, they want to yeah. see change. And I think it's in part because moms have had to deal with a lot of nonsense with their children. Right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. You've got a lot of stuff going on with school boards and Um, kids coming home saying, you know, I'm being taught X, Y, Z in my classroom. And the parent is going, what? Why are you being taught that in a classroom? Why is why is your teacher talking to you about, you know, gender issues and LGBT? That's something that we need to cover in the household. And I think moms are starting to say, now, wait a minute. Um, This is a conversation I want to have with my child, not not something that the government should be having, not something that their teacher should be having. So I'm, you know, it's really exciting to see women start taking that, taking up the threshold for conservative leadership in the country as a whole, because it's as a young woman, I am able to look up to these role models and say, wow, that's what I want to be in my career, in my, in being, a, you know, when I'm a wife and a mother, that's what I want to be. Yeah, absolutely. And sp- speaking of young women, we have Isabel Brown and Jenna Ellis yeah. who will be at the Western Conservative Summit too. Jenna Ellis was President Trump's attorney through all the craziness uh, around yeah. elections. So uh, it would be fascinating to hear from her. In studio, continuing with us, is Stephen Collis. Stephen is one of the top thinkers in the country when it comes to religious freedom lies at the University of Texas at Austin School of Law. We were talking a little bit about, prior to the last segment, commercial break, we were talking about how the LGBT community looks at their uh, movement as a civil rights movement. It's, it drives them uh, to want to secure laws and protections against discrimination from them. And uh, and that's having a conflict with uh, traditional uh, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Orthodox uh, beliefs uh, on kind of traditional family values and and how that's working its way out in law. And you wanted to continue kind of your uh, your thought on uh, on that notion of immutable differences in law and why that's important. 
Well, and one thing I'll emphasize is there's no question it's a civil rights issue. The question is, and what what civil rights framework should we look at it, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, take something like Jack Phillips. There is, there's a number of cases like his percolating around the country, not nearly as many as you might think. They make up less than 1% of the religious freedom cases that are out there. But um, Jack does not want to discriminate against people based on their status in the, as LGBTQ+. He can't participate in a same-sex wedding. So he'll serve anyone who comes into his shop. He had a gay employee, right? But that's the same fact pattern you see in every single one of these cases. What he can't do is make a custom cake to participate in an event. Mm. Um, and you've got gay people who support him. You've got LGBT uh, folks who disagree with him. So it's not as if it's the entire LGBT community is aligned on this, right? But the reality is they've got to deal with the science here. And the science shows that when you're talking about um, someone's sexual orientation or gender identity, it is not a fixed characteristic exactly the way race is for all categories. And what I mean by that is if you really look at the science, L does not equal G, does not equal B, does not equal T, does not equal anything else you throw in that acronym. People are in very different camps for each of those categories, Mm -hmm. and none of those equals race, right? So just saying we're going to treat this the exact same way we've treated race is really not consistent with the science. It's not consistent with the beliefs of people in the LGBT plus community. And I think there's a lot of intellectual dishonesty going on there. But there are some scholars who have said this. They've said, look, we've got to be intellectually honest here and, 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 and show that when we talk about this as a mutable characteristic, it's different for each of these categories, and the law needs to recognize that. So I, I think it's important that we all just dial back the rhetoric and look at this from a serious standpoint and see how can we all survive together in this society. The, the different camps are not going away, so somehow we have to be able to live alongside one another. So speaking of that, uh, we're both going to be down at this kind of religious freedom event that the LDS Church is helping organize at the state capitol. We've got Governor Polis and myself, and I'm basically Colorado's version of Mike Pence, so me and Governor Polis don't see eye to eye on a lot of things. Uh, We've got different uh, groups and uh, religious groups that are going to be speaking as well. I think we have a Muslim speaker, we have a Sikh speaker, we have um, uh, Protestant, maybe Catholic as well. So we've got all these groups together. And how we operate amongst our most passionate differences is something that's really important for the future of this country. My remarks are going to be around the fact that, uh, you know, without religion, you'll lose the mandate and the call from Christ, from my perspective, to love, serve, and pray for those you disagree with. Now, that's not easy. That's very hard for me. I'm very passionate, especially about the sanctity of life. I spent hours and hours, days down at the state of Capitol trying to fight against this radical abortion bill. And I got worked up, and I am there to fight the very best I can. And on top of that, I have to layer. I don't get rid of that with Scripture. I have to layer on top of that the notion to love my enemies, uh, not just those I disagree with, but to actually love love them. <laughs> That's not easy. You've got a new book kind of on that issue coming out. You want to tell us a little bit about that? I do. Well, I, and uh, the title of the book may be a little bit misleading. So the book is called Praying with the Enemy. And uh, it's a true story of an American fighter pilot who was shot down behind enemy lines during the Korean War, and he snapped both of his ankles when he, when he ejected. He gets captured by the North Korean communists, interrogated, you know, tortured, everything else. Um, he eventually escapes, and he's hobbling across the North Korean landscape behind enemy lines, trying to figure out how he can escape. 
He gets captured by a North Korean soldier who has direct orders to basically execute him the moment he captures him. Mm. But the North Korean is actually a closeted Christian who had been forced into the North Korean army. And what he sees in this, the American actually wasn't sure if he believed in God or not, but he had fastened a little cross and he was holding onto that in his hand. And the North Korean sees the cross and suddenly he realized that this, you know, you could say lucky or uh, uh, providently inspired meeting, he realizes, hey, we can, we can escape together maybe. And they start trying to help each other and they have this miraculous escape. But you have these two men who are essentially trained to kill each other, recognize they have this common hidden religious belief and then they escape together to the South. It's this miraculous story. Uh, it's a true story. And what I loved about it is, even though they were both parts of two sides of a different war, they were still able to overcome that and then escape mm. together. Both men had passed away when I started writing the book, but their widows were still alive and in their 90s. One in Korea, one living in the Bay Area in California. I was able to interview them, meet the families, uh, and it's just a really inspiring story and uh, of two people really coming together. And they, they, you know, after they escaped, they thrived. One in the United States, one in South Korea. And did they maintain their relationship after they they got out of those situations? They did not as much as I think they would have been able to today because it's just much it was much harder to communicate across the Pacific mm -hmm. in the 1950s. But uh, the American helped get the Korean a uh, an award from the U.S. military, and he mm -hmm. used that award to actually help build a church in South Korea, and then also to kind of get his life going. He owned a store, and he was able to get moving that way. He helped build his church, and and they stayed in touch in that regard. Um, my book was actually one way of helping bring them back together again. And then there was a documentary filmmaker in South Korea who also helped bring them together. And so they've, they've tried to stay in touch, but it, it wasn't easy, you know, just given how hard it was to write letters back and forth and the language barrier and everything else. But So what's the ultimate message you're trying to communicate with this book? It's the same message I try to communicate with all of my books, which is that people of different faith can coexist together. Uh, we can live alongside one another. Now, I want to be clear. That does not mean we have to sacrifice even an ounce of our beliefs. Right, right. Right. The point, though, is that in a world of true religious freedom, we should be using the power of our doctrines, the example of our lives, the spirit people feel when they interact with us to try to convert and proselytize to one another. We should not be using the power of government. Once we try to use the power of government to force people to change their religious beliefs, um, we are violating principles of religious freedom. And the end result of that almost always leads to conflict. Far better to leave government out of that particular dispute mm -hmm. and then let's vehemently try to convince one another that the other one is right, right? Or that, that I am right and, and try to bring you to my side, but we should be doing it without trying to use the force of government. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the importance of religion. So the whole event that we're going to be both speaking at is, is why religion's important. Uh, I point out in John Lennon's song imagine that he's actually quite wrong that you know imagine there's no countries it isn't hard to do nothing to kill or die for and no religion to imagine all the people live in life in peace uh, the idea that we get to peace without religion uh, just hasn't played itself out especially in this country it's become less religious we actually are getting more vitriolic towards each other and so you need christ you need religion to call us to notions of peace to love, even those we disagree with. That's a challenge. That's not easy, especially among our deeply held differences. Stephen Collis, thanks so much for joining us. We're grateful to have you with us. When we come back, we're going to host Gregory Moore of CCU. He ran for U.S. Senate recently. We're going to have a little conversation about what that was like. So stick around for the Frontier Freedom Hour.